Boom! What's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about evolutionary anthropology, talking about the far future. We have Diego Caliro joining us on the show. Hello. All right. Hello, Al. Thanks Good for coming on. Very excited, very grateful that we met at Jun Yoon's event last weekend. That was a really great event. Such yeah. a good event. I just have to shout out, I mean, this book's so good, Introduction <laughs> in Capitalism, such a good book. Highly recommend everyone check it out. We just had Ari Nazem on the show last night. Oh, really we also cool. also were hanging yeah. out with just another, you know, young, you know, 19-year-old Stanford, just super smart as well. It's just such a good community of people. Very grateful that we ended up meeting and having good conversation. And now we're here to talk. Uh, for those that don't know, we have some background on Diego. So Diego is a philosopher. He's an evolutionary anthropologist in training. You're doing so much, you're writing three papers right now. We're going right. to be breaking down this all into in topics. Very excited. We'd like to start things off with this big history perspective on society. What is your current take on the state of humanity? Right. So I guess my current take, it has two somewhat contradictory elements. On the one hand, it seems that, you know, uh, Poverty is uh, as down as it's ever have been. Uh, technology is, is rising. You can get a pretty good picture of that in uh, Hans Rodling's book about you know the, the statistics of how the world has been unfolding in a very desirable way, let's say, in the last 100 and something years. Um, and uh, I agree with all that. And on the same, uh, on the other hand, it seems to me that we are not considering many possible avenues that could be inducing us closer to some sort of societal collapse or some sort of trouble. And uh, I think one of the ways in which I'm slightly different from most of the thinkers and people who are around here in the Bay Area trying to reason about these things is that I lean on a more, uh, you know, let's make sure that even in these cases where that's what's actually going to unfold, that's what's actually going to manifest, we still create an awesome future later down the road. So that's that's been my perspective, I guess. So I think. We're, we're as good as we've ever been, but we're not necessarily on an upward trend. You know, it might, we might be on the very peak. Um, so that's basically my take. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> so, so it's important to see then that a trajectory may not, like you said, may be at a peak and then be, may be on an angle of declination potentially after that. So the moment in time, although it may look fantastic, we don't actually know which way it's going after. So, Right. One, one thing that I wrote, on, uh, I wrote on a Facebook post a while ago was a big difference that, people can, that I've observed in the reasoning and the, the cognition of people who are more left-leaning and more right-leaning among the people who are more intellectual, like both sides intellectuals, uh, is that the left-leaning people tend to rely more on statistics and the projection and extrapolation of graphs, whereas the right-leaning people, they tend to be more uh, focused on narratives. And these point, these invariance points, these points where there is a big shift, uh, you know, let's say there's a graph that's moving up, something is getting to up to 30%, but then at the 30% point, you expect something to differ dramatically. So I guess the most classical example is people discuss a lot about demographics. Uh, is there uh, consequential historical reasons to expect, you know, if demographics change this much, what are gonna be the consequences down the road? Um, you know, if, if 
uh, different numbers of single mothers exist, for, in, for instance, or if the racial distribution of a group is different, if the cultural distribution is different, um, usually the more liberal people will be more interested in just extrapolating the curve and being excited about it because, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth being excited about. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes these things will change the narrative and then the whole system kind of reorganizes itself. Yeah. It seems a little bit like what Peter Thiel was just discussing when he said that the Google narrative in Silicon Valley is that this is happening all the time and that <laughs> feels like, well, why haven't we solved cancer? You know, why are some of the you know, intellectual communities stalling out in some of the ways? And, and so this is a very interesting conversation to have is what is actually right. the trajectory and how do we participate in making the trajectory beautiful? Right, that's right. I've, I've, uh, there's these two um, monsters, I think they're Lovecraftian monsters, that people use in order to make analogies for um, evolution and for problems in, in game theory in the rationalist community, in the effective altruism community, and uh, among Bay Area people, which are Azathoth, which should be a representative of the idea of evolution itself, uh, and um, Moloch, which is a representation of you know, all the things that if each individual acts according to their self-interest, might end up going bad, right? So sometimes the system is, is uh, organized in that way. The university system might be a, a, a system that has a problem in that way. So when, when the Brexit stuff happened, when Trump happened, I posted uh, thinking about these two systems that so far the evolutionary forces had been uh, curbed for a really long time, at least since the Industrial Revolution. And it was mostly like the problems that we were trying to solve with technology, the problems we were trying to solve with culture uh, were the problems of individual incentives and how to make things like faster and more functional between different people. Uh, so most of our problems were Moloch type. And um, I think that we've, tr we've moved from these game theoretical problems back into a more survivalist state where, uh, you know, with Peter Thiel, with Tyler Cohen, who conceptualized things that way, I think we've eaten most of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and now, the forces that are going to be controlling a lot of what happens in the Earth, like the, the big moving forces, are going to be more uh, based off ev evolution and survival and less about like game theory and the, the, the uh, reorganization of incentives and, and, and things like that. So in that sense, you know, if, if, we have, if we've actually reached this peak, um, of economic, economic development um, and of how easy it is to acquire new technologies, then we might expect that there will be a little bit more of, you know, we might end up electing someone who lived in a zero-sum market uh, his entire career, such mm -hmm. as Donald Trump, right? So that's a, that's a, um, a reflection, it seems to me, of becoming zero-sum, whereas we were positive-sum for a really long time. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so the uh, a main part of, of what we want to see, the growth is the, the pie that's growing a positive sum over and over and over again. Um, and that, like you indicated, this may have been a uh, potentially a moment of zero-sum realization uh, and that right. changing culture in so many ways and changing information technology and... and yeah, yeah. If, if you think of even like the slogans that were running at the time, right, like the idea of... Uh, and not only in the previous election, right? In the previous election, there was the idea of America first. Uh, it, it assumes that, well, if we're not going to grow all together, then we might as well like let our side of the pie grow. 
uh, and I guess now you know if uh, I, I've been watching a lot of the Yang Gang stuff, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. Andrew Yang's candidacy, and it's kind of the same idea, right? It's like okay, so we want to have a redistributive policy um, because it's not clear that normal people, right? You wrote a book called "The War of Normal People." Yeah, yeah and, and it's not clear that there's going to be um, a way for a way for growing the pie constantly in all of its parts. Therefore, should we distribute it? Maybe. You know, so I, I think that it's important to consider this possibility that the technological trend is is on a peak and maybe going down. And then is it potential also that then the ones that are already in maybe the top of the SES socioeconomic status that own a lot of the production already, that are owning a lot of the robotics manufacturing already, drone manufacturing already, artificial intelligence, um, algorithmic uh, drive of you know things like the the social media networks that we use and everything that maybe that the production the re, re, the rewards of the production for them is just going to be significantly greater than for the normal people that and that right. that's what we see with the GDP increasing while median male income stagnates and so that's a major uh, issue is 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 this stagnation or even declination for right. normal people. And that, that causes instability in a civilization, and that's bad news. Yeah, there's, a, there's an evolutionary anthropologist who studied that. Um, he wrote a book about um, basically how inequality, special inequality among men, um, it tends to be a strong driver of violence and a strong yeah. driver. I think it's called killing the competition. It's basically a driver for young male violence and for young male, um, you know, in general, like instability. Yeah. There's ways of trying to solve this instability. You know, people have tried video games, some people take on drugs. Uh, it's unclear where we should, you know, steer. Meaning, meaning is a very important uh, vaccination. Uh, delivering the proper nutrients to every seed when they're birthed into the world, having a strong social fabric, etc. Okay, right. tell us about, you know, we're gonna touch on this as we keep going, but tell us about, mm -hmm. you know, growing up in Brazil, and getting fascinated with evolutionary anthropology. How did this all get started? Right, well, uh, growing up in Brazil, I was born in Sao Paulo, and uh, it's a very big city, so it's a cosmopolitan city. I was always fascinated uh, ever since I had my first class on survival of the fittest about evolution. Uh, and there's been basically two topics that fascinated me my entire life, uh, which are, you know, in any given topic that you tell me, I'm usually going to get closer within that topic to like evolution in some way. So what evolves that is related to the thing you're talking about or about minds. So, uh, you know, evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary psychology, which are very related fields, uh, they're basically the union of these two main attractors, right? My main intellectual attractors my whole life have been to understand better what the mind is, how the mind works, uh, where does it come from, and to understand evolutionary systems and in which ways do they develop uh, in which ways should we expect them to unfold over time. Um, so I stayed in Brazil for a long time. I did philosophy uh, for the most part because the smartest professors in my university turned out to be the people in philosophy. I started doing psychology and then I transferred um, because I wanted to be you know, wherever the intellectual edge was and in my university it was in the philosophy department. Um, I ended up writing a book about the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, who is an evolutionary thinker and a philosopher of mind, so he likes the same stuff I do, basically. And uh, yeah, and I ended up kind of 
thinking that philosophy is going to run a little bit stagnant in the, in the next few decades, uh, in philosophy of mind in particular, and it wasn't going to solve some of the questions that I still had. It had already solved a lot of the questions I had before. Therefore, I felt like uh, trying something new, and I found uh, Professor Terence Deacon, who's my advisor, and he, he studies evolutionary anthropology and neuroscience, and he had a very different perspective, but still involving you know, minds and evolution, these two topics that I really um, appreciate. So a lot of this started with you, you having an appreciation for seeing survival of the fittest and seeing not only like Darwinian evolution kind of as part of um, humanity, but also just a, a, an obsession with how the mind is molded through this process as well, how it evolves through culture, how it gets influenced, and then kind of melding the, the evolutionary anthropology with psychology. Right, I guess a par in part, that's because um, I'm an intuitive immortalist, so I've always wanted to live as long as possible, and I guess th the idea of survival of the fittest is fairly connected, and uh, my interest in philosophy of mind, my interest in, in understanding how minds works, uh, um, and the associated areas, was basically stemming in part from, okay, so it seems that I am this kind of system. Is there a way to preserve this system over time in a way that would be robust and valuable, yeah, um, yeah. you know, yeah. But uh, Woody Allen has a good quote on that, which is, you know, I don't, I don't want to be uh, immortal through my work, I want to be immortal through not dying. Um, and a lot of me yeah. wanted to, you know, it's, it's to yeah. figure out yeah. through evolution, through philosophy of mind, in which ways is it possible to stabilize minds over time. Most of that quest, I think I've, uh, I've let go of, but I'm still interested in stabilizing values and stabilizing like ethical systems and values over the very long run. And I would say that that's basically the thing that compels me and has compelled me for the, the past few years um, in my work. Stabilizing ethical systems and values. Making sure that whatever happens in the future, uh, you know, is still something that we would consider very valuable yes. or, or even that, you know, we can't even anticipate, but that it's still, you know, desirable. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So then it's as though the, the keeping the, the ethics, the values that has made civilization great, keeping that code, making sure that it continues moving forward and becoming better. So that way we ensure that positive that future. Right. And, and especially because at least, you know, I'm, I'm in part a utilitarian, right? I, I, I like to tell people that everyone has a part that they're selfish and a part that they're altruistic. Yeah. The part of me that is altruistic is a utilitarian, right? And wants to maximize the amount of good that happens in the entire course of history. Uh, so a lot of my, my thoughts go in that direction. And that basically means that that requires for civilization to go on, for the possibility of its expansion into space, for the creation of minds that will align in their interests and interconnect in amazing transformative different ways that we yes. have hitherto not seen, you know. Get to the edge so. of knowledge, explore what goes past our edge of knowledge, make new great um, protocols that maximize the flourishing of new minds. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so then, you know, from there, then how did you get brought into the Berkeley ecosystem? Yeah. Right. So the, the transitioning factor was I was already interested in utilitarianism and um, basically I wanted to figure out, you know, after, let's say after my main quest stopped being trying to seek for personal immortality, it became let's figure out, you know, how to make the world the 
best possible world for the maximum amount of minds over the largest course of time. And uh, there were other people in the world who were interested in the same thing, who were also young and kind of excited and connecting themselves through the internet. And those people ended up becoming what later was the effective altruism movement, right? So this was before it had a name, mm -hmm. um, but I connected with some of those people and I created the first uh, transhumanist and effective altruism related institution in Brazil. Um, and I directed it for a while. Uh, it's still ongoing. There's still you know, a few people there. For, for a little while, we had like 25 people. Um, Nice. Organizing a think tank, yeah. promoting things. I was, you know, interviewed, went to magazines and a bunch mm -hmm. of other things. So, um, so that was my entering on this world that later became effective altruism through my utilitarianism, and um, and the two main hubs in the world for that were Oxford and Berkeley. And uh, I decided because I'm Brazilian and Oxford is really cold and it's, I would have a hard time there and I also have a hippie side of, of me and I like dancing yeah, yeah. Uh, that I would be much better off by trying to come to Berkeley than Oxford. That's basically why I applied to Berkeley. Okay, and then now since you've been at Berkeley, um, and what, what has been, you know, you, you, you were teaching me about this and you were teaching us about this earlier, you know, you see all of the potential of where civilization can go and you see that there is a potential for this, you know, this non-super intelligence future. And right. so even though the super intelligence future looks like it's quite likely that we're going in that direction, what if it's actually several hundred years later than what we're predicting? So how can we ensure right that the civilization, the values and the ethics of that civilization, yeah, yeah of, of that ahead. civilization go forth. Uh, so I think um, the reason why a lot of people are driven, uh, especially Bay Area tech people, are, are driven to the idea of, of a single area, the idea of superintelligence, is um, it's on the one hand it's very exciting and on the other hand it kind of relieves one from some obligations that we used to have with uh, evolution, right? So more conservative people feel like they have more familial obligations, they feel like they have obligations to their nation, a bunch of things that they were born uh, already having. Um, more adventurous, uh, left-leaning, innovative people will want there to be a new potential technology that releases them from all these um, tangential discomforts, let's say. So um, let me draw one parallel here and then I'll go back to that. Uh, I think one interesting person who did an experiment in thinking about how the future is going to be without making this assumption of like, okay, there will be a superintelligence and it will generate very valuable things was Robin Hanson when he wrote The Age of M. And the idea there is, okay, let's limit things that about human intelligence but let's change actually the way in which this intelligence reproduces. So the main thing that, that he created was, okay, if we can actually reproduce labor uh, fairly quickly by creating virtual brains that you can literally replicate by copying a program, um, how would the economy be transformed and how would society be transformed? I think this is an extremely valuable exercise because this is one possible avenue of the future, right? So I love the, the Bostrom type exercise where you extrapolate superintelligence. I love the, the Robin Hanson exercise where you extrapolate what happens if replication gets cheaper and we still have the, our level of intelligence. But I thought to myself, okay, who is actually doing the exercise of what if neither of those two te transformative technologies comes to be to fruition, we still want to create the awesome future for as many people as possible. So let's take how evolution has been unfolding so far 
biologically and culturally and what, how it has led us to the point where we are now, and then extrapolate in which direction evolution seems to be going and see to what extent we can steer that uh, movement in a, in a desirable direction. And that's where evolutionary anthropology comes in because it's the study of populations, societies and cultures and the ways in which they've interacted and in which they you know, uh, had more or fewer children, went to war, didn't go to war, built a wall, didn't build a wall, uh, made open borders, uh, you know, the, all, all sorts of transformations which so far have guided the course of history and like maybe someone should be thinking about how to do that, like how, how would the world look like and what to do if the next 2,000 years are kind of like the last 2,000 years, you know? And there's very few utilitarians, there are very yeah, yeah, few yeah. Bay Area people excited about that. So That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because the, the, we, we, we definitely have a strong proclivity to feel like we're at the super intelligence is just, you know, 50 or 100 years. Like these are our numbers, it's happening this generation and everything and it's just like, it's kind of being driven forth by by Silicon Valley in many ways this narrative but at the same time the narrative of uh, how do we ensure that if, if a civilization is like it's been the last thousand years for the next thousand years how do we have a stable growth of, of our ethics and morals this is very very important to discuss right one thing that I seem it just seems to be lacking you know in these big urban centers that aggregated some of the smartest people in the world is basically like no one is thinking of hey, what if the method by which we create new intelligences in the future continues to be via sex and babies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no one is thinking about that. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one who's more utilitarian. Yeah, yeah. Right? And the whole There's loads of religious family, people thinking about it, but... In yeah, that yeah. Fam family, uh, <laughs> sex, babies, uh, keeping this, you know, family ties, community ties really, really strong and powerful is something that, I, you know, I w I'm excited for you to, to touch on a little bit later in our, in our conversation. What is, you know, I read your post about the Christianity superorganism, <laughs> and you had a video about right. it. Yeah, so teach us uh, about this. Two billion people around the world are there's, Christian? There's around two billion people who are Christian. Yeah, about, about the same number, like the Muslims passed the Christians not that long ago. Um, so when I started examining what's going on from this evolutionary perspective with no transformational technologies, well, I guess the first thing you wonder is, okay, who is growing as a fraction of the population and who is diminishing as a fraction of the population? And uh, interestingly enough, um, religion aside, right, if you just look at the different nations, um, there's been a very interesting transformation where um, the people who would eventually migrate to the cities where most of the information transfer is happening between intelligent people, let's say in the USA or in London or in a few other centers in Europe, um, like at least in the USA, they used to be coming from the Bible Belt, right? From They're usually the people who were born in a religious source. They often were people who deconverted or went for a job in the coasts. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, they become the source of the new Facebook, of the new interesting <laughs> technology transfor transformational thing. Um, but this sort of stops happening because there's been a very, very strong decline in number of child per women in the vast majority of Western societies. So what's happening now is the equatorial societies, uh, you know, the Indonesians, uh, Nigeria, and many other sub-Saharan African countries, and maybe some parts of northern Brazil are out-reproducing the other parts 
And uh, it seems to me that very few people are thinking from this perspective of like who are this the gene pool evolutionary sources and the gene pool evolutionary sinks, right? So San Francisco is a sink. People don't really have kids here. Uh, and given they don't have kids here, we should expect you know, the gene pool to be coming from somewhere. It used to be mm -hmm. from the Bible Belt. Now it's from Nigeria, Indonesia, you know, some other uh, Southeast Asia places and so on. And then there's the question of like, okay, if this is the game we're playing, extrapolate this game for a few generations, mm -hmm. uh, given what we know about the heritability of psychological characteristics, the heritability of a bunch of other things, <coughs> where do we expect this to go? Should, will society become more authoritarian, less authoritarian, more interesting, more valuable, et cetera? And I think that that exercise is really valuable. Yes. And this framework of thinking about you know, sources and things. That's why the show is called Simulation. <laughs> you have to simulate out what is... is, is and right. that's a very interesting way to think about it, too, with the populations as a sink in San Francisco. There's more dogs here than babies. Right. And, so, yeah. and, and versus in a lot of the... Um, like uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, we see po uh, birth rates in five, six uh, still. And right. with developed countries, Japan and the United States and a lot of like one yeah. per replacement fertility you have one child per couple instead of even two so right. that's why you see some populations so declining. so that's where the the Christianity story becomes more interesting at least to me like I was raised non-religious right I've had a non-religious upbringing but Christianity started being more interesting and fascinating to me because as I've studied this more and more I've grown to think that one of the main drivers that causes women to have uh, to be willing to have more children is to have a, a culture and a system that is organized around uh, some type of system of religious values. Uh, and then, you know, Christianity and Islam are the biggest ones, so they're the easiest ones to talk about. But I guess Judaism also does the same thing, and there's other uh, smaller religious systems that have that that create that propensity. Whereas, you know, in in most of the of the places that are, you know, memetic sources and genetic sinks, right? So, so San Francisco is a memetic, memetic source and a genetic sinks. Interesting. And inversely, the Bible Belt is the is the, kind of the inverse, right? It's yeah, like if you if you throw ideas there, the ideas basically like they they get yeah. they, they melt. And uh, but if you throw genes in, in the Bible Belt, people will have a lot of kids if you're with the genes. Same thing yeah. with like Nigeria, right? If you throw interesting ideas about, I don't know complicated cryptocurrency yeah. stuff into the Nigerian population, yeah. a lot of it will just melt down. But if you throw your genes in there, there's gonna be a lot of, you know, small islands <laughs> a few generations from now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting, sources and sinks. And, and it's yeah, interesting yeah. to notice that they're inverted, right? The, the mean people and the gene people are kind of inverted. Um, yeah, they are. In that regard. They are, yeah. Yeah. You're also fascinated with primatology, Ron. I Ronnie. love Bonobos. This is Kanzi. He's the smartest primate that we know of, uh, other than humans. Uh, and uh, yeah, he, he's uh, famous for absorbing a lot of linguistic abilities. He can put, he can create a fire and do a lot of interesting tasks. Create a fire, huh? Create a fire. Yeah, he can, he can create a fire. Like That's he, very he, cool. he can, he can, he can do a really like skillful stuff. Oh, this is contact improvisation. Correct, um, which you referenced yeah. earlier was one of the reasons you came to Hippie Berkeley was because you yes, knew I love dancing. Yeah, I love yeah. throwing like rolling around with uh, <laughs> random people. It is yeah, very they're like cuddle puddles, right? It's very fun stuff. Like to be right. all 
you know, loose and dancing and then kind of like rolling around with people. It's a very important thing to, to do. It really brings you back to, you know, humanity. Um, yeah. Less so to these devices and the IT world. And There's know. a lot of me that like, you know, when I go to academic conferences and stuff, I hang out with people who are, you know, they think that their body is the entire function of their bodies is to take their mind to the next conference. And I'm like, okay, maybe we should actually just be a little more monist here. You know, the body and the mind are one. Yeah, and yeah. you have to, yeah. So teach us, so what's happening? You know, these two billion Christians, you're seeing this sink and source. What, and is that the main aspect of the superorganism that you're referencing? Well, yeah, so uh, then we, we could also like uh, sector Christianity by different parts. And then uh, one interesting thing that I've noticed and that made me write about it was that the Mormons are actually the only Western group, it seems, it seems, that is still expanding at a faster rate than the Muslims who immigrated to Europe. So for people who want the West to continue being oriented by the set of values that made possible things like, you know, truth, science, uh, uh, seeking of knowledge, and so on, uh, one interesting perspective would be to provide in some way more, more resources and more ability for Mormonism to keep doing what it has been doing well so far, right? So Mormon, Mormon moms have, I think on average, 3.4 kids. Mm -hmm. Muslims in Europe have 2.6 and then other denominations in the US, you know, it varies a fair amount, both by, uh, by religion and by racial group. And um, I think the Mormons might be kind of, in a sense, a secret. To, to creating this desirable future if there are no transformative technologies because they are the highest intelligence uh, group and the highest level of trust group that is reproducing at a very fast rate in the world right now alongside the Ashkenazi Jews um, who don't reproduce as fast but they're pretty smart and they've already, they have more training in a world that is already globalized, right? The Ashkenazi Jews have been globalized for a really long time and um, the Mormons are very expensive because they send missionaries everywhere. Uh, and I, I think that to the extent that some aspects of what we value in civilization, some aspects of like, you know, the possibility of creating um, artificial intelligence, the possibility of creating Burning Man, the possibility of tolerating atheists, the possibility of tolerating uh, a crazy counterculture of hippies dancing. Uh, I think all of those things, they're much more acceptable within a Christian framework. They're much more acceptable within a Mormon framework um, than they are within an Islamic framework uh, or they are within like many other religions as well. And therefore, you know, if we're going to just steer evolution a little bit, maybe we should just bump the Mormons a little bit. That, that was my, my intuition and what I wrote about. Interesting, interesting. So this has to do with the ability to tolerate new ideas and has ability, uh, the replacement fertility 3.6, you said something True, very high, yeah, 4.4, 4, 4, yeah, yeah. high trust, um, high truth they're seeking. High trust. They're, uh, well, I don't know if Mormons are particularly truth seeking, but there's the question of like who tolerates best the people who are good at truth seeking, right? Who so tolerates so, yeah. truth seekers best. Yeah, right. yeah, that's because a lot of truth seekers, for instance, are atheists or agnostics and atheists or agnostics are genetic dead ends. Right, like in three generations, most atheists won't leave descendants because even if you do, like your children won't, and then your your children's children won't. So what you want is there is for there to be a constant flux 
of new uh, new population, new people on a particular population, say Mormons or Christians or something like that, and then a lot of people will deconvert and they will become the atheists, the the, the scientists, the yeah, agnostics. Yeah. Um, um, Interesting. Yeah. So Same thing with the Jewish groups, right? There's the, the Jewish groups that are more orthodox and less orthodox. Uh, but in order to keep the amount of liberal Jews that exist, you need the conservative Jews, and then some conservative Jews become liberal yeah, Jews. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, right? the, so even though you have uh, th like three and a half children per couple um, that are uh, Mormon or Jewish or um, mm -hmm. that practice Islam or whatever, that one of them, uh, they, one of them at, at least occasionally will leave that uh, religion or that school of thinking That's and go. Right. And, versus if you only have half a child per right. couple, then you have almost you know, no chance for your descendants to, to pick up right. some of the, the values of truth seeking and why not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. and then, and then the, the reason why I put the word superorganism there and that I think that there is value in, in thinking of it that way is, you know, if you have a superorganism of ants, right? You have the queen ant and uh, you have soldier ants and they have specialization and you this have worker ants. This is entomology, which you are also This is This studied. is within entomology. Yeah. yeah, this is just in order to make the parallel like more valuable. This so, you know, religi religious groups also have these separations where you have like a priest class, you have a, a class of the faithful, you have a class that is more fanatic, the more fanatics usually have more children and so on. So within a religion you have these specializations. But think of uh, you know, a Christian country like the US, right? Uh, it's not true that everyone is Christian, but I think the, the, the people in the coast, you, you can think of them as mimetic soldiers. Uh, yeah, in a yeah. sense, right? <laughs> so they are the people who are not the reproductive lineage. The Bible Belt is the queen. They're producing the new gene pool of like new humans. And then some of them branch out to the coast where they learn more about the memetics and participate in the... Right, and some yeah. of them even come to California and then tell the entire yeah. rest of society that actually, you know, they're all millionaires and they should adopt a bunch of ideas that make them have fewer children and then they have fewer children. Um, which is very interesting. Like, I think California, in a sense, Whoa. is kind of a soldier that is decreasing the population of the other superorganisms in the world, um, which is you're you're viewing this all through a biological lens. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so the re the queen the queen bee the reproducer in uh, the you know in an entomological view, this is so interesting. Yeah, where are the workers? Uh, where are the reproducers? Where are the memetics? The driver sourcers right. of the memetics. You have to think of which frequency do you want of which group, and what are the groups that are most likely in the future to generate the frequencies you want. So, so let me let's say something that is dear yep. to me, right? I'm seeing like there's a picture of Burning Man be yeah, yeah. behind you, right? And Burning Man is a very dear thing to me. I want Burning Man to go on for as long as possible. But I know that the kind of person who goes to Burning Man is not likely to have children, and that Burning Man is definitely like a sink for like some of those weirdos in different societies. So I want to make sure that there are more Mormons because some of those Mormons will deconvert to a less fanatical version of Christianity. Some of those Christians will deconvert to a more uh, liberal, crazy, chaotic thing. And these are the people who will keep Burning Man going. Whereas if I was in a society where there was more strict authoritarian values, saying like Erdogan's Turkey, uh, it would be more troublesome because you know there, there can be a crackdown uh, from that kind of society, which prevents people from even being atheist in their, in their ID, being um, Christian in their ID, that kind of thing. And uh, it could also prevent the sorts of fun hippies that I like to hang out with from existing in the future, which I would be sad about. So, so. the ability to tolerate 
uh, ideas and this is so important. And you, this in many ways, as you look at it through an entomological lens, I'm also looking at it through a, a codified lens of, of, you know, which code do you want to continue uh, propagating? What new code deployments do you want to push out um, into civilization? And where are the sources of these code deployments and the sources of the genetics of the babies that are being born? This is some very, very, it's very, very cool. Right. Okay, now what about the mythological ties? You gave you, I think you were talking about it a little bit um, earlier, but and how that relates to morality, how that relates to the individual, right? We see a lot of uh, the, the you know this heroes or heroines journey stories that are occurring. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so it seems to me that uh, society is waking up now to the psychological value of a lot of what before we just had like automatized in our psychological systems. And I guess, you know, the main person by, very, by a very large distance who is doing this job is Jordan Peterson with his like biblical lectures and with his uh, teachings that are being very um, enticing, let's say to young men, uh, to rethink about the narrative of how they're going to live. So I think these, this is a very valuable uh, effort. And what I was talking about is what I expect to be like the next stage of that is that people will realize that there's value only, not only psychological, uh, but also evolutionary in terms of like these population dynamics, you know, uh, uh, attack and defense and other things that if you're thinking of a beehive, um, there's that perspective. But going back into the psychological, um, into the psychological framework for, for thinking of these things, I think We've had a crisis of meaning, which I guess Nietzsche was one of the main people who indicated it by saying that God is dead, but you know his shadow will live for a thousand years, um, where we didn't really know what to do as a society after the death of God, and this created a propensity for a rise into going back into a less mythological, less religious narrative, and a more uh, biological racial kin narrative, which is what moved a lot of the movements that were troublesome in the 20th century and ended up killing a bunch of people. Um, and uh, this rise of collectivism seems to be one of the possible events that happens when there's a fall in uh, systems of meaning and religiosity that organize people around. So, so to me, what happened was, you know, uh, the Christian superorganism in the West, let's say, uh, it lost a lot of its power. And in virtue of it losing a lot of its power, it created the conditions uh, whereby people reverted to a more traditional tribal mode of operation. And that mode of operation led to things like you know, na Nazism and other forms of collectivism, uh, such as some extensions of Marxism, right? Where you still have the collectivism, although it's not in lines of race, it's a collectivism in lines of like nation, you know, the Soviet Union should be one thing and yeah. Um, so I think that the, there's this trade-off between meaning and mythos uh, and how meaning and mythos are able to function as a guide for one specific primate to organize psychologically how they're going to decide through life to go through things. Um, and then if that kind of diminishes, on the other side of the trade-off, you have a rise of collectivism, which is, well, there's someone who's telling me, you know, this is the group of which you are part of that you should care more, most about. So, you know, care about yourself in virtue of being a Brazilian, in virtue of being a, mm -hmm. an Armenian. And then, you know, uh, sometimes the Armenian genocide happens, which isn't really great. So that, that kind of thing 
um, has been very problematic throughout the 20th century in many parts of the world. Um, so yeah. then what is part of you know, what you're describing here is how, how, do, how do we take what you're describing and synthesize it to what could be like the best code from the, you know, the, the, the mythos and the meaning as well as the, uh, the collective uh, you know, potential thinking on that we have as well? How can those two... Right. So, I mean, for one thing, it seems that the, you know, if, if the arguments that Peterson has been putting forth are right and a few other, uh, you know, evolutionary anthropologists and thinkers are right, it seems that the, the reason why the biblical stories, for instance, evolved is because they are a very adaptive system, yeah, go ahead. a very effective system to make, um, to make individuals reason their way through life in a way that eventually creates a stable and unified and functional society, right? So you yes. can think of heaven as a metaphor uh, in, in, in that if you behave in a, in a biblical way and if you figure out how to like slay your dragon and get the, the treasury and you come back to your tribe and you share the treasury, which is a lot of what the biblical stories uh, reveal, let's say, and if you live in a walled garden, that, that kind of thing, um, if that's the psychology that is guiding your actions, you end up creating a society that has positive transformations. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, and this, this starts with the simple, you know, you're waking up in the morning, you know, you're, you're doing gratitude, you're, you know, making your bed, you're stretching your body. Right. You're, you're Even prayer. I mean, prayer, prayer can be thought yes. of as a visualization of a destiny that you want, which yes. is a yes. very uh, yes. fascinating way of getting to there. Yeah. Getting to there. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So this is this potential, the, this the, what do we what do we take as the central ethos and stories that can help uh, individuals pr with the practices every day that automatically will make a better a better world? Um, okay, and then right. this I mean what we were just talking about also has to do with this crisis of meaning that is currently occurring, and one of the things that has come in to help with the crisis of meaning is potentially these these lectures and these intellectuals that have come in and said. We think that if you start with your own self and start with practicing right. these these habits in yourself, that you can help your family, help your community, help the world. And so, there is also kind of a, uh, a weird things happening with the the fertility rates that are decreasing in places like Japan. You actually said it was mm -hmm. the Japanification, right? Yeah, I, I call it Japanification, yeah, and yeah. I think it's a process that's also happening in the West, right? Where, yes. yeah we're reducing populations uh, pretty much everywhere. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, the, the Californian memes being spread all over the world uh, into societies where they're not necessarily adaptive anymore. You know, thinking that everyone can be like a liberal individual, libertarian millionaire uh, who organizes their lives around like uh, cybernetic stuff and information theory uh, and, and thinks in those ways. Yeah, you tell that to people in different societies, they're going to um, stop living in the ways that made their genes like go on and that made their population stable and that created, you know, a stable society for them. So yeah, I, I think there's a there's some trouble in there. Uh, Japanification might be the version there where it's, you know, it's only one country, it's less influenced by that kind of culture, but it's a separation of the sexes just because yes. the two sexes have different incentives. Whereas what I think is happening in the West is like it's that, but on top of that, there's also uh, an incentivized promotion of like people no longer forming families and no longer uh, creating the conditions for you know a stable population over time.
And I'm sure, <coughs> I'm sure we're going to talk to you know Katie about this on the next show. But w the the code here seems to be uh, in some ways at like when we were talking about Junyun at the beginning, this interdependent capitalism seems to take potentially some more of this original source code of these bi of biological kin, of this mother, this love, unconditional love, and taking it. That's why you see when you when you're walking with sometimes a, a st stranger, you you know you're trying to have an altruistic interaction, but it doesn't happen. Right. And so the code hasn't scaled to to that to that degree, and I think maybe some of the some of the code that's caused, and we were talking about this earlier, about the, the f families not being potentially as important. Mimetic sources potentially make it, uh, you, you aim to climb up this hierarchy of mimetic source, there's no time for genetics. There's no time right. for procreation. That, yeah. And, and then and women are trying to climb up that same hierarchy too of mimetics. And the corporations want people to not have time for biology and to not have time to keep the gene pool being one of like high trust, high intelligence, high uh, value people who are, you know, organized or who organized. I mean, the corporations want that, the state wants that. The, the entire system is designed around reducing the propensity of, of the people who could create the most positive society from dedicating themselves to genes yes. and then incentivizing them to dedicating themselves either to dopamine hits or to memes. Yeah, yeah. Those are the two things for which society is being, you know, yeah, twisted. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. high levels of society Damn. are being twisted right so, now. So, 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 the, so let's give, a, let's, give let's, see, let's see if I can do a little quick paraphrase <laughs> as well. So on the, on the mimetic um, sources, there's, uh, there's, at the same time, there's the desire to want to spread memes to billions of people, which is very interesting. It can augment civilization in interesting ways. But then right. if you're not a mimetic sourcer, sometimes you can fall into the, 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 dope, the constant urge for dopamine from video games, from drugs. Um, right. And then that can be, that also takes people away from finding meaning, finding, uh, creating value into the world, uh, pro genetic procreation. So right. that takes away from procreation. Speak for yourself, fun, you know, there's <laughs> big meaning on, you know, the, the drugs work for me. <laughs> Video games work for me. The question yeah, is how many children did they produce? Yeah, and, uh, I love my family. <laughs> and then, and then let's take, let's take into the, the, on that, on that genetic on the high uh, genetic on the high pro procreation side of things wh why why would you say then is a the incentive structure that that we have today what what is what's what's happening with the the government and the private entities the corporations that want the the don't want why is there a strong desire for you know they want more productive workers they right. want they don't want them focused as much on on family and and when there's less babies there's like there's it's a kind of weird thing because you right. when you want well, a kid you also get another mind to kind of mold into the world so wouldn't they also potentially want but a human labor can be less effective than a robotic right. labor yeah, in, in a world where there was sufficient uh, homogeneity of pretty much everything, right? If, if, every if every land piece was homogenous, if every nation was homogenous, if, if there was zero inequality in the world, 
then they would be in favor of families. But what happens is that we live in a world where you can get the benefits that were generated by, by the biomes of like different countries, by the superorganisms of different uh, religions and different systems, without necessarily having to pay the costs. So why would I want to pay your salary to be good enough for you to sustain your wife and two children if I can instead hire you know whoever turns out in the entire population of India to be one of the best 10 uh, computer scientists, right? So I, as a corporation, have an interest in keeping some level of open border so that I can bring in whatever turns out to be the best of that selection pool whilst at the same time kind of like keeping your, your part at bay. And then I get the best people from literally every country in the world and I make them stop having kids, kids yeah. which is what the USA kind of does. I mean, it, uh, the USA is great in many ways. This is one of the things that it does that is a little bit more problematic. Because 10 generations from now, you know, the Flynn effect is also doing this thing where, you know, IQ went up for quite a while, mostly due to nutrition. But now it's definitely going to go down because, you know, the, the people who are producing the most by very far in the world average IQ is like 70, 80, 85. Uh, yeah, like and individually, right? It's, yeah, not, it's yeah. not just a matter of average. Within countries, between countries, everywhere, right? It's, it's idiocracy like that movie. Yeah, that yeah. I've never seen, but everyone tells me about. <laughs> so, one, so one of the major problems you just pointed at is that a lot of the highest, um, <clears throat> the highest, I, the highest IQ or the highest, um, like most abstract thinkers about civilization, the ones that are actually uh, moving the next ways that that better our world into code and into action, these people mm -hmm. aren't having kids. Right. That yeah. that is yeah. That is one problem. The, there's. Well, it's not just it's not just the, 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 the fact that there is this divergence between different parts in the world in terms of salary, right? It's worthwhile for someone to come from, from India to here. But also there's the, the woman question that you mentioned, which is like, you know, do I want my workforce to lose a bunch of people who are going to be stay-at-home moms and taking care of their babies, yeah, yeah. or do I want to get women to be as productive as possible and oh, then God. have to pay half a salary instead? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And then so, and then they can continue being productive. Meanwhile, you continue sourcing the best talent from around the world from those from those ma local maximums across the world because you have the most money. You're the largest superorganism. This very much right. so seems like Google trying to maybe monopolize the substrate that everybody uses and just continues to. Right. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's it's a it's a monopoly on who gets to suction the best genes without that much of a cons of uh, of a care for the future from both the big corporations and some of the big states that are magnets. You know, state magnets that are states that are so awesome that everyone wants to move to them. A monopoly like suction. Like your family did. Like I like my like yeah, I did. Yeah. You know. Yeah. A yeah. monopoly suction of the best <laughs> genes. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and not yeah. This is this is this is a very serious. Like we've outsourced yeah, think, reproduction yeah. to different parts of the world, yeah, and yeah. in doing so, in doing this outsourcing, what happens is that the externalities of that are not being taken into account, and they are deferred to future generations who are not going to have you know as many uh, valuable creators and high conscientious people and so on as the, our generation had. <sighs> Tough. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, couple you know quick quick things on the way out. I know you have a you have an argument against uh, effective altruism, which I think, or it's a corruption. That, that, yeah, it's yeah, a corruption. Yeah, yeah. Effective altruism I think is effective very altruism interesting. Is great. Thing. It is. It's a very but it interesting had problems, thing. Yes. And I think an interesting argument um, for for it that I think still stands though, right, is that you can either spend your time going immediately to a place in the world that desperately needs attention and going and using your human labor hours there, or you can do things like uh, earn the financial means in a developed part of the world to do five times as much impact in that um, area of the world. So there, this is the idea of how effective is the altruism that is being delivered? How do we quantify that and uh, measure that? And so there right. is, there's now, it's now grown to become a superorganism in some ways, a small <laughs> organism, let's say, that has yeah. uh, more corruption. Yeah, I, th yeah. I think what happened with, what happened with EA is, um, there's been two processes that made effective altruism worse than what it was before, right? So when we when we conceived of it, when we created of it, it was very exciting. There were a lot of very good people uh, who were trying to, you know, as quickly as possible deliver as many goods as possible in terms of uh, trying to theorize and architect a movement that was going to make the world a better place by the most effective means possible, right? That was great, um, and then. The two problems that I see with it is there was an once there's an influx of resources, uh, be that you know in the in the state, uh, be that in a corporation, or be that in an NGO or in a set of NGOs, like it's the case in effective altruism, you have the interest of whoever is like bringing in that money, and you also have people who are trying to ring uh, ring fence the money uh, in order to like foster their own causes and kind of corrupt the system in that way. So what happened in EA was the, the, a lot of the best people who were the original, um, creators of the movement kind of separated themselves from EA and started dedicating themselves to like far future stuff, crucial considerations to artificial general intelligence and separated themselves at least from a brand perspective from EA. Uh, which already left the movement kind of like hanging down a little bit, and then there's the secondary process where, if you're if you're pumping money into an entity, whatever it is, you know, the state, the cor uh, the corpse, and so on, uh, people who don't have sufficiently much competency that they would create be creating a lot of value try to capture that value on its way in and on its way out, and um, I think in the in the case of EA, there's been a lot of uh, similarity between what happened to EA and what happened to the Democratic Party of the USA, meaning that the the poverty-related causes in EA, the the national-related causes in EA, ended up becoming kind of a platform of the Democratic Party. So what before was like, okay, let's find the most impactful, neglected, and tractable causes in the world and invest in them. Now it's like, well, there's this person who works for one of the EA organizations that's being sponsored by one of the like Facebook billionaires. And um, in doing so, like they're distributing resources for uh, for incarcerated people in Florida uh, to get the vote. And it's like, who cares if the incarcerated people in Florida get the vote or don't get the vote, given that there might be 10 to the 32 people into the far future, if life is only biological, 10 to the 51 if it's computational. And like when there's so many different ways in which you could intervene with things like uh, schistosomosis control, malaria control, and so on in the, in the present world, right? Even if you are a uh, present chauvinist, right? Even yeah. if you pretend the future doesn't exist, which is an absurd philosophical position if you ask me, but even if we pretend that, 
there were still much better investments to do uh, than, yeah. than, than that. And I think EA got corrupted on those lines. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, to be able to continuously measure the, the, the efficacy of what we're uh, delivering uh, and what to focus uh, on. It's very hard because the people yeah. who are bringing in the money, they bring us, like sometimes are the same people who are bringing in the corruption, right? Uh, that's yeah, that's just crazy. Yeah. 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 The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, um, let's ask you about the, the la you know, you were targeting this in the last part as well. This AI safety and security. You know, there's, this is exploding as you know. You talk about this in, right. in uh, as well in your content, where you where you say that if if we just think that uh, we just leave this alone, the malevolent characters that are the democratized cost malevolent characters can still take off with it. So AI safety and security is a lot about making sure that the malevolence cannot occur. Right. Well, I think I mean AI, AI safety has been the thing that I dedicated most of my early adulthood to, right? So for about 10 years, I was dedicating to effective altruism, to movements and etc. But within those, an emphasis on the far future. Within the far future, an emphasis on crucial considerations and within crucial considerations, an emphasis on AI, just because I think that from an impact perspective, AI is the, the it's the one that if we solve that problem, it's going to reduce dramatically the magnitude of a lot of the other problems yeah. that could happen. So out of all the existential risks that could come to pass, AI is the one that deletes most of the other ones mm -hmm. um, and therefore one of the most valuable ones. And it's also one that seems more actionable. You know, it's kind of, it's not very easily actionable to work on like brain scanning, uh, like either it will become uh, a neuromorphic problematic thing or it won't, but in AI, you can actually use technical human knowledge uh, to try and, and, and help it out. Um, I, don't, I don't think that malevolence of humans is the main worry that we should be having on AI. Um, at least if we're talking about super intelligence, you know, artificial general intelligence, um, because there are sufficiently many technical problems that just getting the, the, the technicality uh, right Maybe governance problems might be more relevant in terms of like how they make sure that in a multipolar world where many different agents or many different artificial intelligences are operating against each other, how do you prevent evolutionary conflict between them that will create the types of incentives that will make one of the players kind of, you know, cast a very negative spell very early on in the game that could uh, compromise all the value of the future. Uh, so yeah. I do think that we should think about AI from the perspective of governance, but I think about it more in terms of systems and less in terms of like Dr. Evil is planning the AI in his basement or something like that. Yeah. Having some centralized control is actually good, right? I, I tend to, I have yeah, become more, more, more conservative and more right-leaning, but this is a case where I go in the other direction and I'm more of a statist, like left-leaning uh, movement because I want there to be more centralized control of who has the ability of creating uh, an yeah, AI. Yeah. And, in the current world, sure. only states are big enough, you know, to, to do yeah. that kind of thing. And why not use some of this data fusion technology, these little credit score technologies where you just don't get access to a gun or, or artificial intelligence or synthetic biology or whatever the disastrous potential may be if you um, right. have had a previous record of significant malevolence? I mean, oh, right, that's, right. The centralized, yeah, no, I, that's the centralized argument side of things. And, of course. And there is a little centralized community that maintains like the Bitcoin core, right? So the Ethereum core, these are little groups that you have mm -hmm. to work your way up in terms of 
uh, cryptography and blockchain technologies to in order to, to right, partake. Some, yeah, there's some sort of like credibility system that basically pumps the right people to the top. And what we what we want uh, in terms of morality and like reorganizing the people who are already like they've given up on genetics and they're only living in the meme space. For those people, I think what we want is to align the incentives of you know fame and capitalism and power yeah, yeah. as much as possible totally. with morality and with creating a good future so yes. that would be you know a yes, great yes. way to yeah your 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 fifth boat or fifth gold watch is just you know it's not going to add any value <laughs> to your life anymore it's yeah yeah, Through yeah. All, the interdependent capitalism is yeah that's that's a yeah. case where we actually want to like remove the evolutionary incentive right we have this remove evolutionary desire yeah. from signaling to everyone exactly and like okay and make it not we've cool. signaled enough you know like yeah we can signal a little less <laughs> the instagram feeds have gone yeah ridiculous uh yeah promoting that type of behavior and making that the incentive and, and depressing teenage girls and, depressing and a bunch of other things the young people and yeah yeah, yeah. Jay, this has been super fun i want to ask you two questions on the way out okay all right this is simulation so we have to ask you are we in a simulation uh i i, I take the same response as bostrom i don't talk about my probability of us being in a simulation in public because i think it can be misinterpreted by people in many different ways but yeah there is a probability and uh, I, I this, think I assign a higher probability than most people would. Okay, okay, um, yeah, I do, so I do, I do too. We are, Good. We're, we're probably on the same living page. in the same okay, in, okay. in, in, in some ways. I was yes. going to say, this is probably the safest place for you to not be misinterpreted <laughs> uh, with this question. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I buy the simulation argument, right? So the simulation hypothesis is the hypothesis that we are, but the simulation argument is one of those three things is true. You probably uh, are familiar with that, you know, either we won't create simulated civilizations, uh, or we will restrict their number enormously, or we will, um, you know, we will create them, and then most people who are in one, most people already are in one, uh, or we'll destroy ourselves before we're able to do it yeah. to begin with. Uh, so I do assign some some probability mass to yeah. being in a simulation. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> For one thing, it would increase yeah. my chances of immortality, which sounds great. Ah, you know, interesting. Yes, if yes. I'm if I'm just the ape that most people think I am, odds are yeah, yeah, that yeah, that you're that, less likely that, to be immortal. That, yeah, yeah that there, there's a, there's a limit at the edge. Not well, yeah, that I'm less likely to be long lived. Long lived, yeah. You yeah, know, the first yeah. million years is what counts. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a whole slew of other uh, areas to go with the whole uh, infinite, infinite beings and where we go pre-birth and post-death and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of fun in that fun the metaphysics of that. Of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then last question is, what is the most beautiful thing in the world? The most beautiful thing in the world? Um, I... I think I would go for a, like something enveloped within another thing, enveloped within another thing. So maybe something like um, after a delicious conversation with friends, reading a Nick Bostrom paper over a pyramid at Burning Man before uh, go <laughs> before the sunset. That sounds like a good combination of things. Uh, yeah, so that's the that, that would be a beautiful experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of enveloping beauty in yeah, different yeah. kinds of that's beauty. Cool. So huh. 
Yeah. Yeah, you took a very meta yeah, perspective very meta, on that. No, yeah, this you is the... tapped in so many different things into the, into the <laughs> chain of beauty there. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I think, I think complexity is one of the valuable things around in the universe that generates a lot of beauty. I love complexity. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you must be a great romantic with that whole... I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm an incorrigible romantic, as you might find out in the next <laughs> interview. Jacob, <laughs> thank you so, so much for coming thank on you. to the show. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, there was a lot thank of very, very good wisdom unpacked there. Helen, Ron, yeah. thank you very much, guys. Yeah. Yes, yes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate you. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Let us know what you're thinking. Go and have more conversations with other people about what was talked about here. Huge shout out to you, Ron Vagas. Thank you for producing and directing. Thank we you, love Ron. you very much. Also, everyone, support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in. You know, Diego's links are below, Simulation's links are below. Support them, let them flourish, help them flourish and go and build the future. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you so much and we will see you soon. Peace.